All right, let's go. While they receive the offering, uh, we're just going to jump right in um, this morning. So this morning's a little bit different. And if you've been, again, if you've been with us on the Path of Flourishing, you know where we're going this morning. Um, we're in the third pathway, uh, which is by becoming like Jesus. The past two Sundays, we've talked, what does that mean? What does it look like to become like Jesus? We've talked about the work of sanctification, which is God working in the lives of every single true follower of Jesus to change our hearts and to change our minds to become more like the heart and the mind of Christ, that we would long for and love the things that Christ longs for and loves, that we would find, um, man, that we'd find ourselves becoming more and more like him, that our spouses would see Christ in us, our kids would see Christ in us, our coworkers would see Christ in us as he shapes and molds us into his image. And so this morning what I want to do is get super practical and say, okay, what, what, is, our, what is our role in that? Which is actually a really, really tricky and hard question um, because I have been very careful the past two Sundays to make it very clear that this is the work of God. Okay, sanctification is what God does in you, not what you do. And, and I said, man, the lie of every religion on the planet is that if you just do the right things, if you do the right things, okay, you will kind of earn your own sanctification. They don't, they don't say it that way, right? It's, you'll earn your own worthiness. You'll earn your own um, righteousness. You'll, you'll earn the favor of God. If you just do the right things, if you just give enough money to our organization, if you just serve enough in our organization, if you just do these right things, if you become a good person, then, then God's going to look at you and you'll be more righteous and holy and be more like Him, okay? Um, and so I've been very careful for the past two weeks to say, man, that's, that's just not true, that's, that's not true. I mean, it's like, listen, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might have or be made into, be told, lay hold of the righteousness of God. So where do we, where do we find this righteousness? Where is it found? It's in him. It's in Christ. That he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become, be transformed into the righteousness of God. Our righteousness, the only place where righteousness is found is in an internal transformation, a becoming the righteousness of God, an internal work that Christ does in us. Our righteousness must be found in him. And so when, it, when, you, when you say, man, what is our role in sanctification? That's a dangerous question to even ask, right? But I do believe, I do believe that there are practices that the church has practiced for a long time that increase our awareness of our sanctification. There are practices that help us to experience what Christ is already doing in us. And there's practices that we do as a result of what Christ is already doing in us. And so those are the practices that I want to talk about this morning. Things that we can do to increase our awareness of, our experience of, to press into this that don't actually sanctify us, okay? Um, Paul's, Paul tried to explain it one time. I'll probably get in trouble for this someday in heaven, but didn't do a very good job. Um, he said it this way. Paul, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Listen, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
So it's the grace of God. The grace of God in me has transformed me and made me into the man that I am. The great apostle Paul, okay? Pa- Paul who is, man, the great theologian, the great pastor, the great church planner, the great evangelist, the apostle Paul. I am who I am because of the grace of Christ in me. Sweet. That's what we've been saying all along, right? He doesn't stop there. That's the problem. He says, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, listen to this. I worked harder than any of them. So, you, so the grace of Christ is transformed. It's all grace. It's all grace that's made me who I am. But at the same time, I worked harder than anybody else. Like you can take any other person in the church. I outworked them. I worked harder in righteousness. I worked harder in worthiness. I read my Bible more. I prayed more. I was kinder. I tried so hard. I strained forward so hard to be like Jesus. So which is it? Is it him? Is it Christ in you or is it you working? Well, Paul goes on and he says this. Though I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So even in my working, even in my straining, even in my striving, even in my trying under my own effort to be more like Jesus, it was Jesus all the time. Paul's like, it's always Jesus. Even when I am working towards sanctification, it's Jesus who's moving me towards it. So so as we experience the grace of Christ in our life and we begin to experience this transformation— Man, we long to experience it all the more. So there's certain practices that we can begin to do as a result of what Christ is already doing in us that help us to experience it, to see it, to press into it all of the more. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Um, Jesus brings about all of the true internal change that we will ever experience in our life. He brings about every ounce of it. So therefore, the only thing you can possibly do is fan the flame of affection within you for him. That's it. That's it. Our job is to practice things in our life that are going to increase our affection and increase our desire for him, that we might love him all the more. Last week I said the greatest goal of your life must be what Christ is doing in you. That must be it. But if that's the greatest goal of your life and you have really no role in that, the greatest work of the Christian must be to increase their affections and increase their love and to increase their desire of Christ. Last week we talked about this idea of our perfect preferred future, right? For every single human being on the planet, out there in the distance is a perfect preferred future. There's something that you believe out there will bring you greater flourishing, a greater delight, a greater joy, right? If I could just get that job, if I could just get that raise, if I could just find Mr. Right, if I could just find Mrs. Right, if if my kids would just behave, right? Out there in the distance, once these external circumstances change, then then there will be flourishing in in our lives. And I argued last week that in a lot of ways, that's a gift of God in your life. Because what it is, is it's all these promises of flourishing that never actually deliver. 
Like for a moment, you're like, oh, I finally found it. Now there's flourish. You know, it didn't actually, didn't actually fulfill. It's on to the next one, and on to the next one, and on to the next one. Until finally, until finally we're led. Finally, we find our way. Because we're ever hungering, ever wanting, ever longing for it. We find our way to the source of all human flourishing. The one who holds the keys to all real, genuine flourishing. The God of all things. Christ alone offers true human flourishing. And so that Christ takes up residence inside of us and begins to transform us into his likeness. And this is where the sweet sauce of flourishing is found. And so what, the, what wars against this, friends, and we talked about this last week. Again, I don't want to go back and unpack everything from last week. If you, if you weren't here, you need to go online and listen to it. What wars against the flourishing that's found in the, in the sanctifying work of Jesus are these small things in our lives, these, these perfect preferred futures. Um, John Piper, a theologian in Minneapolis, Minnesota, pastor, puts it this way. Um, you can skip down a couple slides, actually. I'm kind of all over the place. Sorry, brother. Um, John Piper puts it this way. He says, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not poison. But apple pie. It's not the banquets of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of an ox, and a wife from Luke 14, 18 through 20. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see this morning and what we talked about last week. Is that what, what decreases our affection for God, for the one who offers true, genuine flourishing, is an increasing of our affection for the things of the world. The more we long for those things, the less we desire this thing. You only have a certain capacity for love. And when your loves get out of line, when you begin to love things in the wrong order in which they should be loved, we're robbed of our flourishing. You cannot possibly have a flourishing life, true human flourishing, if you love things out of order. If you love those things more than you love Christ, you've created these idols in your life, and you can, you can no longer, you can no longer have and experience all that Christ has on offer because you're chasing and pursuing and creating these lesser loves. And so the goal of one who wants to experience the flourishing that Christ has on offer, this internal transformation of becoming like Jesus, the goal must be, that the aim must be, the work must be, to increase our affections, to increase our desires, to increase our love for him. And so really this morning it's a call to hunger, a call to be one who increases, ever increasing their appetite for Jesus, always seeking Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Our goal must be to increase our hunger, to increase our thirst for the one who is truly righteous. Because in that, in him alone, is true 
satisfaction. So, how do we do this? How do we increase our love? How do we increase our hunger? How do we increase our desire for Christ? In the goal of becoming more like him, how do we increase our affection for him? I want to give us two practices this morning, two simple practical, practical things for our lives. Now in 2019, South Davis County, I should have said at the beginning of this, um, in the third week of each one of these pathways, we just got super practical, right? And it's not necessarily a sermon, like we're going to um, take this text and exposit this text. We're just going to talk practically, right, as a family. What do we need to do in order to love Jesus more? Um, and so two practical things. Uh, how do we increase our appetite for Christ? Two, two things. Number one, we increase our appetite by indulging. I know that might sound weird, but it's actually really, really simple and true, right? Um, we indulge when we, when we love. We indulge in what we love, right? Uh, last week, my family and I, uh, we, we went to Korean barbecue um, in Salt Lake City. Uh, d- downtown, there's an amazing Korean barbecue place. Um, and our family just like loves it. Like Haddon, Winston, Desiree, myself, we're just like, we love some good Korean barbecue. And the thing is, it's all you can eat and kids are free. And so if you know Winston... Baby, this is a good deal, all right? Like the waitress is just like, keeps bringing out all this raw meat because you like cook it there in front of you. It's amazing. She keeps bringing out more and more and more. And Winston's like, I want this big bowl with like a fried egg on top. And I'm like, why not? And the waitress is like, who is this kid? Like, what is happening, right? And at the end, we were like stuffing ourselves on like kimchi and marinated tenderloin. It's like, oh my goodness, it's so good. And at the end, like Winston's like, I'm full to hear, Dad. I'm like, I'm full to hear. He's like, no, I'm full to hear. I'm like, I know, I can see it coming out your ears. And he's like, really? I'm like, no, not really. And like, we, like, we walked out of that place so unbelievably satisfied, like ridiculously satisfied. Now, am I, am I like, I don't want any more of that? No, let's go back today. Like, I don't know what you guys are doing this afternoon, but if it's Korean barbecue, like, I'm in, okay? In fact, we should just have, like, church at a Korean barbecue restaurant. Like, that would be, like, soul-satisfying and stomach-satisfying, like, all at the same time. Like, we could, like, trademark that. It'd be amazing, right? But think about it. Just for a second, think about it. Here's my point. When was the last time you stuffed yourself silly, okay? Now, I know, gluttony, let's, let's, for a minute, let's be honest. When was the last time that you, you like, walked out of a restaurant. You're like, man, I need like a cart to carry me out of here. Like, when was that, okay? Was it disgusting food? Were you like, this is gross food. I don't really like this. No. It was delicious food. Like, this is amazing. I can't stop putting it in my mouth. What is wrong? What is happening? I don't, I can't eat anymore, but I just keep eating it. I don't know what your thing is. I don't know what you love, but listen, we indulge on the things that we love, and we taste something that is worthy of indulging, you can't stop yourself. And friends, I'm here to tell you, Christ is worthy of indulging. When you begin to taste Christ in your life, you long for it all the more. We indulge in the things that are worthy of indulging on. When when you taste something, you're like, man, I can't stop. I can't get enough of that. That's Christ. So how do we feast on Christ? How do we indulge on Christ? I'm going to argue three ways, okay? First, we indulge on just who he is. Like, who is, who the word, the truth of who the word says Christ is. Who is Christ and what are the promises of Christ over our lives? And those things are worthy of indulging on. When you begin to read your Bible, we've said this again and again and again and again. 
saying, you need to stop reading your Bible. I just want to see how awkward it would be if I just stopped there. You need to stop reading your Bible for information, okay? And begin to read your Bible for intimacy. We read our Bibles for intimacy, for awe, for wonder, for majesty, not for information. If the person who reads their Bible for information is like the guy who goes to the McDonald's drive-thru because I just need something now. So I'm just going to just shove it in me and just like, uh, it didn't taste that good. It didn't do anything for me, but like I checked it off the list. I got it done. The person who reads for intimacy is the one who like cuts into like the perfectly cooked filet with like the perfect glass of wine. It's just like this, this is amazing. We read for intimacy. We indulge on the Word of God. So yesterday, uh, we have a Bible reading plan here at Flourishing Grace. Um, if you haven't been around long enough to hear about that, there's extra copies uh, right up there on the table. They look like uh, this. Um, this is kind of disorganized, but it looks like this. Um, there's some tables out there, or there's some out there on the table. Um, and it's a, it's a two-year Bible reading plan. Where in two years, you'll read through the entire Bible. And you'll actually read through the New Testament multiple times in two years. You read through the, New, the Old Testament once and through the Psalms twice. It's, it's an amazing, amazing plan. And it follows the, the church calendar. And so it kind of prepares our hearts for the seasons that are coming. So it prepares our hearts for Advent, which is coming. Um, hate to ruin your Sunday, but Christmas is coming. Better get ready for that. Um, so it's, right now, it's preparing our heart for, for Advent. And yesterday, um, our, the reading of, in the Psalms was from Psalm 135. And, and part of it reads this way. I'm just going to read a part of it for you. Uh, Psalm 135 reads this way. It says, For I know, the psalmist writes, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Now, you could just read that, check it off the list. Sweet, I did my Bible reading plan for the day. Done, moving on. What's the next thing? I got lawn, laundry to do, yard work, chase the kids. I got things to do. Done, check it off. Or you could feast on it. And just for a moment, just sit and marvel at the sovereignty of God. I know, I know our Lord is great. Whatever he pleases, like whatever brings him pleasure in heaven and earth, like that's what he does. Like whatever he wants. Like when, when anything good happens, man, it is God. There's never been a moment that he's like, man, I don't know if I can pull that off today. Like he just does whatever he wants. He's like, you know what? It would be awesome. A supernova. Boom. Like, look at that. Like I just did that. Like whatever he pleases, he does. At any moment, at any time, he's sovereign over all things. He controls the lightning and the rain and the wind. He stores the wind. It, it's his. It belongs to him. And when it blows, he longs for it to blow. He's sovereign over all things. He's the maker and the sustainer of all things. In him all things hold together. This is our God. And when we begin to savor him and, and devour his word and indulge in his word, we long for more. 
You can just read it and move on, but there's no longing to come back. It's when we read for awe and wonder and intimacy, that's when we long to come back to the Word. And for so many of us in the room, like, we've, we've tried to do the Bible reading plan, and we just, like, didn't get very far. We didn't really like it. It wasn't, like, it wasn't entertaining enough for us. And we tried this one, and we tried that one, tried this one, and just none of them seemed to ever fit. Friends, if you tried multiple Bible reading plans, you're like, I just don't like any of them. It's probably not the plan. You can't just read your Bible to check it off a list. We read our Bible to develop intimacy with our God, to increase our affections and our love and our delight in Him so that we might experience the flourishing that He has on offer. So we indulge in His Word. We indulge in who He is through His Word. But we also indulge on His gifts. Like constantly, James says he's, he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. All right, so if you've ever experienced something good in your life, like there's been a moment where you're like, man, that was amazing. Like, I don't know if you're sitting around with friends just laughing, playing, having fun. Like, that was a lot of fun. Or you, you did something with your, with your family. You're like, that was incredible. I love that. Or maybe your spouse just came up and gave you a hug. Like, at the end of the day, you just needed that hug. Like, it's a gift from his hands. Like, every good thing that you've ever experienced in your life is his. Like, when you hear your kids, like, laughing down the hall, like that deep, like, belly laugh, you know, and you're like, Des, what's going on? Now, after you check and make sure they're not, like, destroying something, okay, am I, am I alone in this? Is that only my boys? Like, okay, that laugh is up to no good, okay? Um, but, like, once you realize they're, they're, they're just playing, they're having fun, like, that's a, that's a gift from his hands, man. That's amazing. When you walk outside on a cold day and the warmth of the sun hits your skin, praise be to the God of all things sustains all life with the warmth of his son. How unbelievable is he? So we just feast. Like when was the last time you slowed down just to like observe your day? Like at the end of the day, you just kind of thought about the things that you did, the things that you saw, the things that were said to you, the things you experienced, and you kind of sorted through all the clutter and said, man, these were the good things, and just praised your God for those things. Just worked to increase your affections and worked to increase your desire for him. Like yesterday, we went to this thing in Thanksgiving Point. It's like a butterfly exhibit. And some of you are like, butterfly exhibit? I'm like, I, I know, I'm with you. But listen, when you walk in, there's like thousands of butterflies. It's insane. It's amazing. And you can, like, pick them up and touch them, and they, like, land on you. And it's, like, every size and color and shape. You're like, this is unbelievable. Like, Winston's got, like, this massive creature in his hand. He's like, this is the coolest thing ever. And you could just, like, kind of do that and just check it off the list and move on to the next thing. Or you can sit and be like, oh, my gosh. Like, look how beautiful and awe-inspiring and wonderful this is. And to see, like, the joy of a child be, like, increased by a butterfly. It's amazing. That's not, that's not normal. That's not, that's not natural. That's a gift of God. It's a gift from his hands. And so, but if, if we're just kind of moving, 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 hurry, 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 you never actually see it. We must be people who stop and kind of at the end of our days assess all that is happening, all that we see, and fight through the clutter and say, where, where is the joy in my day? Where are the small gifts that God has given me? And begin to praise and thank him for that and increase our affections for him. The last one on indulging is this. Uh, we indulge by feasting on the gospel. And this is probably the most important one. We must be a people. Christians must be a people who are constantly feasting on the gospel. Reminding ourselves, recalling our minds to who our God is. Perfect and holy and blameless and mighty. And then recalling our minds to who we are. 
pursuers of lesser loves, idolaters, constantly seeking to find flourishing in the things that we can build and create rather than in him, constantly turning our backs on him and loving lesser things. And what is due to us? The full wrath of God. That's what's due to us. And there's, there's a punishment, there's a penalty for our behavior, for our action. But God loves us so unbelievably much that he gives his son to die in our place, to absorb the wrath, that we might be clothed in his righteousness and be brought in, that he might take up residence inside of us and begin to transform us from one degree of glory to another, from the inside out, to transform our hearts. And that's why Christ died and rose again, so that he might create a new people and a new kingdom. It's amazing! And nothing increases our affection for him than reading our minds and reading our hearts in the fullness of the gospel. There's a story um, in the gospel of Luke where uh, Jesus is invited to go to have dinner at a Pharisee's house. And he shows up to the Pharisee's house, and the Pharisee's kind of rude. He doesn't, he doesn't offer him any water to wash his feet. Uh, doesn't greet him with a kiss, which has been like a normal practice of the day, a respectful thing to do. Um, doesn't annoy his head with oil. It doesn't really do anything for the Pharisee but, or for Jesus. And, and so Jesus sits down, and they begin to eat and talk, and they're, they're probably de- debating religion and politics. And, you know, it's a rabbi-Pharisee conversation, super heady and heavy, and, and they're telling stories. And, and the whole time, there's this woman that has, like, crept into the house, which is creepy in and of itself. Um, but she's at the feet of Jesus, and she is weeping, just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing, and her tears are falling on Jesus' feet. And she is using her hair to wipe his feet, to cleanse all of the dirt, just wiping the dirt off of his nasty feet with her hair, and just wetting them with her tears and wiping the dirt away with her hair, and just weeping. She pulls out an expensive bottle of ointment and begins to rub him on his feet. And the Pharisee's like, what do I, what do I, this is awkward, like, what do I say? And he begins to think in his mind, he's like, man, if this guy was, was actually a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that is. She's a prostitute. And Jesus says to the Pharisee, Simon, he says, Simon, I have a story to tell you. There was once a money lender. And he lent money to two guys, two debtors. To one he lent 50 denarii, and to the other he lent 500. And when it came time for these two men to repay their debt, neither one of them was going to pay. So the money lender forgave both the debts. He looks at Simon the Pharisee and says, which one, Simon, which one do you think loved him more? Simon says, well, the one that owed him 500. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah. When I walked into your house, Simon, you didn't give me any water to wash my feet. Yet this woman is washing my feet with her tears. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I sat down. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with expensive ointment. And I'll tell you this, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For the one who loves much is forgiven much. The one who loves little is forgiven little. Friends, do you see the need to increase your love for Christ? 
So we must be people who say, how? How do I increase my love for Christ? What made her love Jesus more than Simon? What made the prostitute love Jesus more than the Pharisee? She saw her need for a Savior. That's it. She knew she needed Jesus more than the breath in her lungs. And so she loved him more than Simon ever could. Man, the gospel, nothing increases our affection more than the gospel of Christ. We must be people who preach the gospel of ourselves every single day. When was the last time you sat down and just preached the gospel over yourself, recalled your need and desperation for Christ, confessed your sins before him and cried out to him and said, man, I need you more than I need anything in my life. When was the last time you feasted on Christ, you indulged on Christ, whether who he is in his word, the gifts throughout your day, or in the fullness of the gospel. These are the things that, these are the practices that we do to increase our love and our affection for him, to experience more of what he's doing already in our heart, the work that he's already doing. We see it more clearly as we love him all the more. Now, Second practice, and then we'll be done, okay? So not only do we increase our love for Jesus by feasting on him, but we increase our love by fasting from the things of this world. Now, we can fast from all kinds of different things, but traditionally, fasting involves food, right? And I know, like, in our culture today, right now, like, it's like, wait, what? Fasting, not eating? That's weird. Unless it's for, like, a diet, right? There's, like, this intermittent, intermittent fasting, which is, like, the, all the rage right now. Like, everybody's, like, intermittent fasting. It's like, yeah, you're going to lose weight if you don't eat. Like, everybody knows that. I don't understand, like, why that's such a revolutionary thing. Yeah, you don't eat, you lose weight. Uh, I, I should have sold that. Like, I could have made a lot of money by telling some of the people that something is so obvious. Um, but that's not at all, listen, that's not at all what Jesus talks about when he talks about fasting. That's not at all what the church has traditionally talked about when the church talks about fasting. Um, fasting was, for, the long, for over a thousand years, has been a normative thing for Christians. Um, if you guys could skip down, I think it's Brett back there, if you could skip, skip down to uh, that Matthew 6, 16 passage. So this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, and he turns to his disciples. So he's teaching his disciples, his followers. He says this, he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, uh, that their fast may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received the reward. Listen, people get it. They see it. Yeah, they're fasting. They've received their reward. But when you fast, not if you fast, not if you feel like it, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father, by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's what I want you to see from this passage. Someday we will come back and we'll preach on fasting. This is not a sermon on fasting. This is a sermon on increasing our affection and our love for Christ, that we might see what he's doing in us, okay? And love him all the more, and press on all the more, okay? So, all I want you to see from this text is that Jesus assumes that his disciples will fast. He assumes that his followers will fast. Now, they did not fast while he was on earth, right? There's a, there's a text where the, where the disciples of John the Baptist, who regularly fast, like look at the disciples of Jesus, and they're like, why don't they fast? And Jesus is like, man, the bridegroom's here. 
Like, I'm here. Like, the party's now. Like, there's no reason to fast. The time is coming when you will fast. But that time is not now. And so Jesus assumes he knows that his disciples will one day fast. His followers will one day fast. They'll refrain from eating food. Now, for well over a thousand years, this is what Christians did. In fact, uh, John Wesley, in the 1700s, John, John Wesley, um, he, he was, he's one of the greatest leaders in the Christian church. Um, he's from Europe. He, he created and established kind of this movement of Christ followers um, that was known as um, the Methodists, right? If you've ever heard of the Methodist denomination, he brought that to the United States. Um, and John Wesley, this ferocious theologian and follower of Jesus, I stumbled upon this quote from John Wesley this week. Um, and just a fair warning, Buckle up. This one's pretty crazy. Here's what he says. I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, so-called Methodists, both in England and Ireland, who follow the same bad example, have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice in the week that they do not fast twice in a month. How dare they? Not fast twice in a month. Yea, are there not some of you who do not fast one day from the beginning of the year to the end? Can that possibly be that there's a Christian out there in the world that doesn't fast a single day of the year? But what excuse can there be for this? I don't say for those who call themselves members of the Church of England. No, 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 no. But for any who profess to believe the Scripture to be the Word of God, since according to this, the man that never fasts is no more in the way of heaven than the man who never prays. Dang. Let, let me just tell you what Buster said. He's like, can you believe that there are not people who fast? Can you believe that there are people who say they're Christians and they don't fast twice a week? Like, can you believe that that's the thing? You see, for over a thousand years... Christians fast twice a week, every Wednesday, every Friday, from basically from dinner the night before till that, till that dinner that day, they would fast, like a 24-hour fast. From, from Tuesday dinner, they'd eat dinner on Tuesday, and they wouldn't eat again until dinner on Wednesday. And the same thing on Friday, every Wednesday and every Friday. That was, that's what you did as a Christian. And Wesley's like, can you believe that there are people who say they're Christians that don't do that? There's actually, guys, there's actually people who say they're Christians that don't fast twice a month. It's unbelievable. There's people, can you believe that there's people who think they're Christians and they don't fast more than once a year? They don't even fast in a year. It's insane. And he goes on, the last line is like the craziest line. He says, can you believe the person who doesn't fast is no more in the way of heaven than the person who doesn't pray? He, he puts praying and fasting side by side, right? And we would say, of course you're not a follower of Jesus if you never pray. Like, how can you possibly follow Jesus and never pray? He says the same thing about fasting. Now, friends, I'm, I'm not, listen, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not some faster. I, I'm not, I don't fast twice a week. I don't fast twice a month. I fasted once in the last year. Okay, so I'm not, I'm, this is not a guilt trip. I'm just trying to get you to see. This was once something that was so unbelievably normative for the church. Like, this is what everybody did. Everybody fasted. Of course you fast. How can you say you're a Christian if you didn't fast? Spurgeon, um, in, in the 1800s, said it this way. He said, Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, have been high days indeed. 
Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer to the central glory. Like we've never experienced, like if you know anything about the history of Spurgeon and what happened at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, it's insane stories. And he says, man, there's never been more insane times of the grace and mercy of God being poured out on us and people being saved than when we as a church fasted together. Like those were the sweetest days. It was normative. Spurgeon's like, of course we fast. Who doesn't fast? And then we fast forward to 2019. We're like, wait, what's fasting? That's like the new diet thing, right? The intermittent fasting, like that's, that's fasting? That's what, no. Like what, what, what was once normative is now completely lost. It's gone. Right, Lent, the season of Lent used to be this, this season of fasting. For 40 days, people would fast basically from dinner to dinner the next day, so 24 hours, and then you'd break your fast at dinner each day, um, and you would, you would indulge, and you would eat a good meal, and you would talk, and what has God shown me? What has he revealed to me? What has Jesus done in my life today in this fast? How have I increased? How's my hunger for him increased today? And you'd share that with your kids, and you'd share that with your friends, and you'd gather for meals around the table for 40 days leading up to Easter. Now we're like, I'm going to fast from chocolate and Coke and sex. Man, the church is so lame today. Like, so lame. Like, what is wrong with us? I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to dog you. I'm with you. Like, I'm, I'm ripping on myself. Why? Why does Jesus assume his disciples are going to fast? What is the benefit of fasting? And again, this is not a sermon on fasting, so I'm going over this pretty quickly. But why do Christians fast or why did christians for so long fast here's what piper says on it i read a quote from piper earlier this is on his, in his book on fasting he says this is the essence of christian fasting we ache and yearn and fast to know more and more of all that god is for us in jesus that we might see and delight in and engage in and increase our affection for all that God is for us in Jesus, but only because he has already laid hold of us and is drawing us ever forward and upward into all the fullness of God, into all the flourishing. So here's what he's saying. Fasting earns us nothing before God. I said that at the very beginning of this. None of these practices do. You're not going to get more righteousness. You're not going to get more holiness um, by doing more, by, by eating less. You know, that doesn't make you more holy. Christ alone in you makes you more holy. But as we refrain from food, as we cut back on the things of the world, things that we actually need, we need food. If you don't need food, you're going to die. In our saying no to food, not only are we increasing our ability to say no to those things out there in the distance in the future, our, our perfect preferred futures, we're increasing our, our willpower against those things. But we're, we're also increasing our, our, our ability to see our need for Christ. I need Christ more than I need food. And as I give it up, I see my need for food. And if I need Christ more than I need food, it shows me, it reveals how crucial, how beautiful, how wonderful, how important he is to my life. And it increases my affections for me. So I'm increasing my willpower. I'm increasing my love. I'm increasing my knowledge. All through giving up food. 
There's a myriad of other things that fasting does, but again, I said this is not a sermon on fasting. We'll come back. We'll come back someday. We'll preach on fasting. All I really want you to see is that fasting was once central to the process of sanctification for every Christian. It was like, that's what you do, and now it's not. And so I wonder why we can lift our gaze and we can look out and see this, this ever-growing need for more. We hunger and thirst more for the things of the world right now than ever before. Like we're constantly consumed with working for more and creating idols and chasing after those idols. Our pastors dress like rock stars and drive crazy expensive cars and wear crazy expensive clothing. And we're like, yes, that's it. We've forgotten what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. To say, I don't need the things of this world. I don't need food. I need Christ. I'd rather not have food and have Jesus than not have Jesus and have food. We've just lost a basic, simple discipline. It's gone. And so I wonder what would happen. I would wonder what would happen at Flourishing Grace if every man and every woman kind of picked up these practices of just every single day, at the end of our day, kind of that daily office, at the end of the day, we sit down and we fight through the clutter of all that happened that day and say, man, what was my greatest pleasure, my greatest joy today? What put a smile on my face? Where, where are the gifts of my God in my life today? Man, when I read the Word, what did it teach me? What did it show me? How did I marvel? How did I wonder? How did I increase my love and affection for Christ? So every day sitting down and just kind of doing that work of saying, where was God at work in me today? And then one day a week, listen, I'm not going to push you to two because I know you're going to, like, kill me. One day a week, you say, man, I'm just going to fast. I'm going to fast for 24 hours. I'm going to give up food from one dinner to the next dinner. And we'll feast as a family. We'll talk about all that we've seen God do and all that he's taught us about our need for him and, our, and the way he's increased our love and our affection. What would happen? How might it change us? How, how, might, how might it reveal what our God is already doing in us. That's the hope. That's the goal of fasting. That's the goal of observing what God is working in our life so that we might see all the more clearly what he's already doing in us. And that's my prayer for you, that you would know that if you're a follower of Jesus, God is at work in you, and he's producing something far greater than those things that are out there in the distance in the future that you think are going to bring you flourishing. But it's hard for us to see them because we're so consumed with chasing after the things that we actually think are going to bring us flourishing that never do. Let us be people who give up those things and deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow after Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning and we lift you high in this place. You've done a great work in our lives individually. You've done a great work in many of our marriages and many of our children. You've done a great work in our friendships and our relationships. You, you have produced and created so many gifts and wonderful things in our lives. We're sorry for the ways that we've taken those things for granted and that we've turned our back on you and said, look at what I've produced. Look at what I've created. Look at what I've done. Help us to see our need for you all the more clearly. Help us to be people who long to say no to the desires of, our, of this world and say yes to you. As, as we begin to practice the thing that you taught your followers to practice, 
would you show us that you're already working in us. You're already producing greater love and greater affection and greater grace in our life. Help us to follow after you, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and get busy. Pray these things in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.